Good morning. If we haven't gotten the chance to meet before, my name is Joe, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I get the truly sacred privilege of serving our students and youth here. Uh, and I'm really glad you're here, but I, I have to be honest about something. Um, this was not my week. And I came into this weekend just feeling dry and kind of empty and broken. And so I only say all that because uh, a wise friend told me to be honest about that. And so uh, let us pray together uh, with me, would you? Father, I just want to say thank you, Lord, uh, that you're good and that your goodness is not dependent uh, on, my, on my feelings. It's not even dependent uh, on my behavior, that you're just good and it's who you are. And so, Lord, I want to, to claim my inadequacy today. And I want to confess the parts of my heart that don't look like you and surrender them to you and ask that you would use me despite me. And so, Lord, uh, may you increase and may I decrease. May you become more and may I become less. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, how many of you remember your first car? So, I know a, a lot of us in here may not be old enough to have a car yet, but just for the sake of the illustration, stick with me. How many of you look back on your first car with nostalgia and fondness? How many of you are like, I kind of wish I could have that car again? Okay, some of us, like th those of us that have like a 57 Chevy or a Camaro or something awesome like that. I am not in that group with you. <laughs> My first car uh, uh, actually had people um, say a quick little prayer for me because as it drove by on the road, they were like, he's gonna die. <laughs> uh, my first car was a 1992 Chevy Corsica. I got a picture of it. It looked exactly like that. I know, I know what you're thinking. That's not, like that's the car that when it drives by, everyone looks at, but not for the right reasons. You know, when you see that nice Ferrari or whatever, everyone turns around and takes pictures. This was the car that everyone would see going by on the road and just think, that's gonna cause a lot of damage one day. <laughs> and uh, a couple stories about it, one, um, how I got that car, uh, I, my first ever job was a dishwasher. And, um, you know, if you've ever been a dishwasher before, sometimes some uh, of the line cooks um, are a little bit of shady characters. And we had a line cook that came, uh, that I heard, overheard a conversation uh, in the kitchen one time, and he was saying that he was trying to sell his car. And I was like, oh, you're selling a car? He was like, yeah, do you know anyone interested? And I was like, I'm interested. Now, I was very, 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 very gullible. And so I was like, I'd love to buy your car. And he was like, oh, well, the thing about it is, is there's like seven or eight people who have offers down on this car, but my preference would be to sell it to you. I was like, oh, how touching. Like, <laughs> what a good guy. And so he was like, the thing is, is they're like wanting 2,000, they're, they're offering 2,000, $3,000 for this car, and I'll sell it to you for 1,000. It's like, this is a, such a good guy. Again, if you ever need advice on negotiating to purchase your cars, let me know. I'm your guy. <laughs> I'm quite the bargainer. <laughs> and anyways, he, uh, so I, I literally ended my shift, went straight to the bank, withdrew $1,000, which was all of my money, and I went and brought him $1,000 in cash, handed it to him, and he handed me the keys, and I drove away. By the way, this was how kind of sketchy it was. Uh, we didn't sign any titles because I was a gullible 
16-year-old kid. And so I drove this car down the road, and I was on the highway, and next thing you know, um, like a swarm of wasps started to fly out from underneath the floorboard while I was driving. <laughs> and I am petrified of bees and wasps, by the way. <laughs> I am terrified. So I pulled over, had to call a cousin to come over, basically, and bring a fire extinguisher and, like, get all the wasps' nests out. We found eight wasps' nests all throughout the car. <laughs> when it rained, this is what the interior looked like, by the way. I know, just so dashing, right? Burgundy interior. I hope that style comes back. But um, literally, when it rained, there'd be an inch and a half of water that would just slosh around on the floorboards. And you never wore flip-flops in this car because the carpets were always wet. And it... And so anyways, uh, this car stopped working after a couple months. And I remember asking a, a friend at church who was a mechanic, I was like, listen, I, I just want to know what your thoughts are on the repairs, because I don't want to pay more for the repairs than the car is worth. And I'll never forget what he said to me. He literally said this line, and it's burned in my mind. He said, Joe, an oil change would total this car. <laughs> So I do not look back fondly on my first car, but I want to tell you the story of my second car because I grew up poor, and so it took a couple years before I could afford my second car, and I worked for a long time. I worked a couple jobs in college, and I saved up all of my money, and my next car happened to be a 2003 Saturn SL2. And the thing about it is, is this car, uh, its selling point, I don't know how many of you remember this car, but its selling point was that it had plastic doors. That was like a marketing tool that they used to sell this car, that you couldn't dent it. Uh, and I just remember thinking, I would brag about that to people. This was my Tesla. <laughs> and I, I literally drained my bank account, $3,000 for this car. I signed a check, gave it to the used car dealership, like the salesman, drove this car out with $75 left in my account. That was it. And a week and a half later, I'm driving around the bend, and it had just a couple days of it being, you know, relatively nice. And as I'm driving, I start to fishtail and hydroplane. And, and, and driver's ed, they all tell you, like, if you hit that scenario, this is what you do. But when you're actually in that scenario, you don't know what to do. So I oversteered and overcorrected, steered into a ditch, and then rolled my car th four times. Shattered every window on the car. And I virtually spent like $3,000 to rent a car for a week and a half. And I'll never forget what I did, because before I called 911, I punched the steering wheel and had some few choice words for God. And I crawled out, crawled out the window, the driver's side window, which by the way is a miracle in and of itself. I got to walk out unscratched. And it's only in hindsight that I recognize how miraculous that is. But at the time, do you know the only thing I could think of is why would God do this to me? Why would God do this to me? Why would God allow, why would God punish me? What did I do to deserve this? And I just started racking my brain to say, what did I do in the past that would make God punish me? Or why was God withholding good things from me? And I think this is a very human tendency, by the way, 
for us, whenever challenges, suffering, hardships come, it, become, it becomes really easy for us to suddenly think, God, what did I do wrong to deserve this? Or maybe to say, God, why are you withholding good things from me? C.S. Lewis, after his wife had passed, had begun doing some journal entries. And in the midst of his journal entries, uh, they got compiled together after the passing of his wife into a book we call Grief Observed. But he has this really profound line in the book. Uh, After the passing of his wife, he said, not that I I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not so there is no God after all, but so this is what God is really like. Deceive yourself no longer. What C.S. Lewis is saying here is that when challenges, suffering, and hardships come, it's not the existence of God that's threatened for us, it's the character of God that's threatened for us. And by the way, when I talk to students, by the way, who are going through challenges, their parents are getting a divorced, divorced they, they don't get into the college they were longing for. They, they were trying to do everything right in a dating relationship and it still ended. 99% of the time that student will come up to me and they're not like, so this means God doesn't exist, right? They ask the same question, why would God do this to me? And as I've tried to like wrestle with this in my own mind and kind of come to a conclusion about it, the conclusion I come to is I think for a lot of us, myself included, I interact with God more as a what instead of a who. I interact with God more as a what instead of a who. He's this, most of the time I interact with God like he's this distant being in the sky. And if I do everything on my checklist, if I pay the, the, the cosmic vending machine, if I, if I do everything right, he'll bless me. And that's how this transactional relationship works. But the problem is, is when suffering and hardships come, that truth is most of the time the first thing that's threatened. And so for me, this is a statement I want us to wrestle and grapple with today. When God is a what to us, he is a being to appease. When God is a who, he is a being to commune with. I'll repeat that. When God is a what, he is a being to appease. When we don't actually know him, he becomes this being that we have to do a a list of things to, to make sure he doesn't come after us. But when he is a who, even the challenges and the sufferings are, are reminders for us of his relentless pursuit for us. I articulate it this way. Growing up, I did hear about the, the cosmic vending machine illustration, right? When God's a what, most of us are like, yeah, like we, I almost call it the TV prayer, right? The TV prayer, I, I used to grow up watching The Simpsons, right? And when Bart Simpson would have like a test coming up, it was always like when he was at the end of his rope, he would sit in front of his bed and say, God, if you help me pass my test, I I will become a better Christian or whatever he would say. I I will only do good things, I promise. And we think that somehow we're twisting God's arm into into blessing us because God's a what? But when God's a who, we start to view our circumstances very differently. But the thing is, is there's a lot of people in here who are like, yeah, I know God, But I want to to just create a distinction here because there's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. 
There's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. And there's a lot of us in here who have been going to church, have done the church games for decades, and we know a lot about God. But it's radically different from knowing him. And challenges, hardship, suffering, that's when it will become clear whether we know him or just know about him. Let me tell you the difference between knowing about him versus knowing him. I am a big Seahawks fan. And I'm actually dreading this upcoming season because I think... Um, it will make me a masochist. Like, I think watching games will, will just feel like suffering. <laughs> and the thing is, is, is I was a big Russell Wilson fan. I know, I'm, I'm really sad and, and heartbroken. And the thing is, is I could tell you a lot about Russell Wilson. I could tell you where he went to high school. I could tell you where he went to both colleges. I could tell you what his wife and kids' names are, how old he was when his dad died. I could also tell you what his living room furniture looks like from his front lawn. Just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. I, I, I promise you I'm not that kind of a fan. I could tell you a lot about Russell Wilson, but I don't know Russell Wilson. I don't know Russell Wilson. And a lot of us can know a lot about God it's very different than when you know him by experience. And you have found that even in the most heart-crushing moments of your life, he's there, loves you, grants you peace. And it's in those moments that we know that he's good. But what happens if God is only ever a what? What's the logical conclusion of that kind of relationship? And I wanna show us the negative example of that. I wanna show us someone who lived out their life as if God was a what? to show us the tragedy of that and the hopes that it would inspire us to experience God as a who. And I'm, we're gonna talk about a character today in the Bible that many of us don't really talk about. None of us have named our sons after him. And he's a forgotten character, but I think it, his experience is really enlightening to us. And that is the character of Jephthah. How many of you have ever heard of Jephthah? Very few of us. Uh, he's not a very popular character, maybe rightfully so, um, but he ends up being a very unique guy in the Bible. And in order to kind of explain uh, his story, I kind of have to give a lot of backstory on what leads up to his life. You see, the whole Old Testament, the Bible is split into two parts, Old Testament, New Testament. The Old Testament tells us why the world is as broken as it is. And it's because humanity has self-directed love that ultimately leads to chaos, violence, brokenness, and that's our experience. And yet God in the midst of that experience is saying, I'm gonna restore and redeem it. And ultimately I'm gonna send a person who makes everything right again. And he, he, he chooses to do that through a small nation of people called the Israelites. But around 1800 BC, that group of people finds themselves in a peculiar experience in that they are enslaved by the world empire at that point called Egypt. And in 1800 BC, they're, they're stuck there for the next four centuries, at which time God appoints Moses to come in and free the people through his power. And he does that. He leads them beyond the Red Sea. They end up in the Sinai wilderness. And God's like, I'm going to use you to be a light to the nations. You're going to be in a promised land. And a journey that should have been 11 days took 40 years. Not because someone, not because someone was using Apple Maps. <laughs> they end up being stuck there for 40 years because their own rebellion and self-directed love. And they wander and wander and wander. 
And so God raises up Joshua who finally leads them into the land and it, it poses this question that if I change the external circumstances of my life, will it change the internal reality? And the thing is, is Joshua leads the people into this promised land. They're not wandering anymore. And it, it creates the scenario of does that fix things? That's the question at play here. And we, by the way, we all do that. We have these like if only kind of experiences, right? If only this external reality in my life was changed, then the internal reality would change. If only I made $10,000 more a year, then we'd be all good. If only my spouse was a little bit less critical and more gracious, then our marriage would be good. If only I could finally be in that relationship, or if only I had gotten into that school, or if only I got that promotion, then life would be good. But the thing is, is the Israelites end up proving to us that changing the external circumstances does not change the internal reality, because the thing is, is they just end up bringing the wilderness with them into Israel. And in doing so, we end up getting four more centuries of destructive relationships. And that ends up being the book of Judges. Now, the book of Judges is not about like, like what we think of Judges with a gavel and a robe and, and ruling, uh, ruling on like crimes. A judge in ancient Israel think more of a military tribal chieftain. And they're, they're men and women that God appoint over these four centuries to help Israel be delivered because they keep finding themselves in these cycles. And let me just explain what the cycle is because again, they end up in, in the promised land, they think their external realities have changed, now we're good, but then something starts to happen. Here's a graphic I found of the cycles, but first they find themselves in idolatry. And we always look at the ancient world and we're like, idolatry is dumb, like how could they worship a statue? But they weren't worshiping the statue, they were worshiping what they thought the statue signified. And so they created an image for it, but the only difference between them and us is they, were, they had a statue to signify that they worshiped sex and fame and money and power. And they just thought that that was all coalesced in this image. But we still worship idols to this day. But the thing about it is, is any idol we worship will eat us alive. It will oppress us. And so they end up in oppression. And at first, it's always by neighboring villages and tribes, these people who aren't God followers who come in and take them over because they end up being the kind of people who are oppressed. And next thing you know, in their oppression, they finally turn and cry out to God and he always delivers them. And the cycle's really beautiful to me because no matter how many times we make the same mistakes, no matter how many times we fall, God is still God. He's still faithful. He's still who he is. And he's still pursuing his people. No matter how many times. But the ir irony is this cycle becomes a downward spiral because over time, the people oppressing them are not out there. They end up oppressing themselves by the end of the book. And over and over, there's this phrase repeated in the book, in that day, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In that day, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In that day, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so the hope of the book is, God, when are you going to send the king who makes it right? But in the midst of that cycle, God is still faithful to deliver them. And it's in this cycle that we end up getting the character of Jephthah. And I'm just gonna spoil the ending for you. Jephthah never learns that God is a who. And he always lives as if God is a what. 
and his life is a tragedy. So we'll take a look at it together, but in order to properly understand Jephthah and what he does, we first need to understand his origin. And so we're gonna take a look at that in Judges chapter 11, verse one. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah. So first things, whenever, the Bible rarely actually describes people specifically. So whenever it does, it's a really important facet of the story. Right here, it basically says that Jephthah is really great at fighting. He's really great with violence. But he also comes from a broken home. And that's not a great combination. And we'll see uh, what his broken home looks like in verse 2. And Gilead's wife also bore him son. So Gilead is actually born from his father and a prostitute. And Gilead had a wife. And he had, quote, unquote, legitimate children. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tov, and worthless fellows corrected around Jephthah and went out with him. So a couple quick things. One, uh, he ends up getting rejected and abandoned by his family. And sometimes uh, the translation of the Bible, they, the translators make a choice to make words feel a little cleaner. And it says he, he surrounded himself with worthless fellows. Let me just tell you, it means he surrounded himself with bad people. Because the thing is, is I want you to, to not just look at Jephthah as a, a flat character. I want you to look at him as a real human being. And if you were someone who was rejected from your family and starved for love, what would be the thing that you would long for the most? Family. Belonging. Home. And the thing is, is humanity, we're hardwired for connection. We're hardwired for intimacy. We're hardwired for belonging. But the thing is, is when we're starved from love from the people we think should give it to us naturally, we end up finding it in the easiest and sometimes most destructive places. But I just don't want us to lose that Jephthah's longing from the beginning is family, it's home, it's belonging. But notice what Jephthah has here instead. He has a mafia, a mob, a gang. He's a killer fighter. People are threatened by him. And so he gets to get what he wants from people by means of violence. That's who Jephthah is. And so fast forward in his story, and the people end up falling into that cycle of idolatry again, again, worshiping or valuing something more than God. And when that's our, our main aim and pursuit, it ends up eating us alive. And so the people end up getting taken over by this group called the Ammonites, and the Israelites end up going to Jephthah, and they're like, we need you and your gang to fight for us. And he says, I will fight for you if you make me your leader. Because again, we're driven towards belonging, and he believes that this violence will be the means by which he accomplishes that. And so he's having to fight for what he wants. And the question is, I want to I, I ask you is, this whole time, what would a better posture be? Notice in verse 29, skip down with me. 
In verse 29, then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. He has agreed to go fight the Ammonites. And so now he's, take, he's gonna go fight them. And what I want you to see is the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. So now the fight's about to begin. But the author of Judges does something really interesting here. Notice how it already says God was with him. The spirit of the Lord was with him. And can I say here really quick that by all metrics we would want to use, Jephthah is a terrible person. And it reveals something really profound about who God is. I resonate with Jephthah. I didn't get the privilege of growing up with my parents and I bounced around to a lot of different homes and so family and belonging were so important to me. But oftentimes I would end up trying to manipulate my way into belonging and into family. And to know I never crossed the line where God would not be with me. And there's people in this room right now where you, you're sitting in here and you're like, I don't even know why I'm here because I screwed up too many times. And I wanna tell you, Jephthah's story reveals that that is a lie because there's nothing you can do that will make it where God does not want to pursue you and where God does not want a relationship with you. You have not crossed the line too many times. Because of the character of God, every breath you have can be a second chance. And so God is already with him as he enters into the fight with the Ammonites. And he doesn't need to do a thing because that's just who God is. But notice, again, Jephthah never translates that God is a who and he always lives as if God is a what. And he has to do something to earn the blessings and favor that God is already freely giving. And you see that in verse 30. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's. I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Burnt offering was really specific in the Old Testament. It was the only offering in which the entire offering belonged to God. Most other offerings, like the person offering would get a portion of it or the priests would get a portion. This one was like, no one gets anything but God. Actually, in our old King James versions of the Bible, uh, the, the word for burnt offering there was holocaust. It means totally burned up. And so uh, that word got applied, but it really means that the whole thing belongs to God. And so he literally, Jephthah is saying here, this is that TV prayer, God, if you bless me, if you help me, then whatever you want is yours. God, if you help me get this job, I promise I'll go to church every week. Or God, if you give me this job, I'll read my Bible every day. Or God, if you give me this job, I promise not to be doing those things that I was doing. I promise to give up my addictions. I promise, and we, we, we try to bargain with God as if that's who he is. And we missed that Jephthah's missing, that God was already with him. He didn't need to make this vow. Can I, can I nerd out a little bit and spoil the story? Is that okay? We have that kind of friendship, right? 
the, in verse 31, then whatever comes out of my house that Jephthah says there, that is ambiguous in the original language. It can literally mean what or who. Just tuck that one in the back of your mind. So is God gonna bless Jephthah because he made this vow or is God just gonna bless Jephthah because he's God? And notice what happens in verse 32. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them. And the Lord gave them into his hand. The author does not want you to be mistaken. It wasn't because Jephthah's a good fighter that he won. It's because God was good. And God blessed him. And he struck them from Aurora to the neighborhood of Minneth, 20 cities, and as far as Abel Karamim with a great blow. By the way, try saying those names five times fast. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. He did it. He won. Is it because of his vow that God did this? Or is it because God is going to bless because that's who he is? Apart from anything we do, apart from any mistake that we made, apart from how many times you've crossed the line, God's going to bless because it's who he is. So then the question is, what of Jephthah's vow? And just before we continue, what is the thing that Jephthah longs for the most? Family, belonging, home. In verse 34, then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Beside her, he had neither son nor daughter. What was the thing he longed for? Family. And this is his family. And she's coming out to celebrate because in the ancient world, when you heard that your tribe won in war, you came out with dancing and celebration. And she's coming out to celebrate what God had done. And now notice Jephthah's response. Instead of God was so good to us, look at what he does. And as soon, in verse 35, as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble for me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. This is a cheery passage, right? Coming to church and hearing about child sacrifice. I, I could just feel the tension and like discomfort in the room, by the way. <laughs> This is awful. It's okay to call, by the way, when something awful in the Bible happens. The author is trying to have us interpret this. And we have a guy who views God this way, that this is what God would want. This is what God would want. When God is the what, we think that he's always coming after us unless we appease him. And he's coming to take the things we value the most. But I want to ask you, who told Jephthah he could not take back his vow? Who told him that? If you notice, by the way, in this whole story, the book of Judges is brilliant, by the way, because the book tells you when God acts. Notice in this story, we get to hear when God acts, that God was with Jephthah, and God gave the Ammonites into Jephthah's hands. But God doesn't speak in this story. 
because that's how your and my life works. And the author is asking us to interpret these, these scenarios and these stories to recognize that for a lot of us, God is constantly blessing and acting on our behalf and pursuing us and coming after us, even in our biggest challenges. And sometimes his voice is the hardest voice to hear. But if we just view God as this cosmic vending machine, if God is only ever a what, then we think I have to keep paying him these things. I have to keep performing or else he's gonna ruin my life. And that is such a brutally hard place to be in our faith. Some of you are, are new Christians or some of you don't even know if you believe this stuff yet. Some of you have been so wounded by people who have claimed to be followers of Jesus and have lived lives like Jephthah that said, if you didn't live up to a certain set of standards, God wants nothing to do with you. And my hope for today is that for those of us in that place or those of us that have just been living under the burden of God being a what for so long, that, you would tra- you would, that God would begin to transform that deception, that lie, and the, into the fact that he's a who. And he's been pursuing you with relentless love. That he's been with you regardless of the mistakes you've made. And that he longs to bless you But Jephthah doesn't see that. And by the way, neither does his daughter in verse 36. And she said to him, my father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according what has gone out from your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone for two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months and she departed she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. The Bible is weird, right? (laughs) Like, it's okay, by the way, this is not, this is like super awkward. The point here, though, that I just want us to, to feel is, again, what did Jephthah long for the most? Family, belonging, home. And both he and his daughter think of God so much as a what that God wants to take that from them. And that's okay. They think that this is okay. This is who God is. He's just a what? He's an emotionless being in the sky. And I want us to feel the tragedy of, the reason why they're, they're mourning for the virginity is because in the ancient world, your line, it, once it was cut off, there was no bigger tragedy And for a guy who longed for family and belonging and home, he thinks God wants to take this from him. And so I want to ask you in another sociological study here, how many of you think he does it? How many of you think that he sacrifices his daughter? How many of you think he does not? How many of us are still waking up and it's Labor Day weekend and we're pretty tired? (laughs) Notice in the verse 39, and at the end of two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to the vow he had made. And I just want to bring us back to who told him he needed to do this. 
But when God is a what, we think that he wants to take everything from us and we have to pay the cosmic vending machine. And for a lot of us, we've been living like Jephthah, maybe not to this extreme. Please don't go out and sacrifice your children. But we've been living under the burden of this for so long. And I want to ask you, who told Jephthah he needed to do this? It was Jephthah. By the way, six times in the Old Testament, the Bible says not to sacrifice your children. Notice in two books right before this, in Deuteronomy, it mentions it several times, but two of the most clear. In chapter 12, it says, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done, the neighboring villages. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their God. Basically, God's saying here, I don't want that. I never wanted that. In verse 18, or in chapter 18, excuse me, it says, there shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter as an offering. God couldn't have been any more clear. He didn't want this from Jephthah. All he wanted from Jephthah was a relationship. He wanted to be a who for Jephthah. And then Jephthah would have seen all the pain and hardship and his story and all of these things were God's way of pursuing him. But Jephthah missed it. This is the logical extreme of viewing God as a what? And I wanna talk a little bit about what we can get instead. When I was in seminary, um, I was in a cohort, like a group of about 15 or 20 of us, and we would meet frequently before, you know, we'd have class, but then we'd also, it was like a relational, how's life, how's ministry, all of that kind of dynamic. And there was a gal in one of my cohorts, and one of the most brilliant, bright people I've ever met, uh, knew way more about the Bible than I ever could. And I remember one of these times we were going around and and giving uh, updates on our life and she and her husband were expecting and and after a couple weeks she was sharing this update and her eyes started to, to fill and well up with tears. So much so that you know when it's really obvious that their voice is quivering and shaky. And you could just see the light reflecting off the tears that they're trying to hold back. And she told us that she lost her baby. And by the way, there's, there's a handful of women in this room that that has been the experience for, and I just wanna let you know, I know that is profoundly painful. And this, this gal in my cohort who was so brilliant, she ended up asking the professor, I just don't know why God would do this to me. And as she was trying to just churn in her head why this would happen, she was like, do you think it's because I ended up going too far with my boyfriend in high school? Trying to rationalize why this would happen. And a mistake she had made 15 years earlier, she thought that God was chasing her down to punish her for that day. And I think there's a lot of us, myself included, who live this way. And for me, God has really been working in my heart to break this view of him 
because an incorrect view of God means an incorrect view of people. And I was thinking about my own daughters, and I have two daughters. I have Rory, who is two and a half, or two and three months, or something like that. I should know. <laughs> and I have Haven, my, our new five-month-old. And my relationship with them has taught me more about God and myself than any relationship I thought possible. And the thing is, is I almost feel like my relationship with them is like a reverse Grinch. That my heart has grown so many sizes than I could ever imagine. I didn't know it was possible to love someone this much. And there's times where I lay up at night and I just fear that God is coming after me to take my girls. What a terrible way for me to live. And then I just rest when God, when I'm finally quiet enough to spend time and commune with God, I get this voice that God's saying, Joe, I'm not asking you to give up your children. I'm not asking you to give up your child. I gave up mine. I'm not coming to take from you. I've been pursuing you to give to you. And God never asked Jephthah to give up his child. God wanted Jephthah to know that God loved him so much he was gonna give up his own child. Romans 8, chapter, uh, Romans 8, verse 31 says, what shall we say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And so many of us have lived for so long thinking God's just coming to take. And I hope that God can become the who in your life that he wants to give. And that even that diagnosis, even the fact that your job isn't what you thought it would be, even the fact that your friendships aren't what you thought they'd be or your relationships with people aren't what you thought they'd be, that all of those moments aren't God coming after you to take but his pursuit of you to say, I'm gonna give and give and give. And I'm never gonna stop chasing you till you learn that I want to give everything for you. And as we sit here today, I don't know what you and I need to walk away with, but if I can leave you with anything, it's this truth that God can't love you more than he already does. He gave up everything for you and me. And so as you leave today, I want us to be in a posture to receive. Because you have a God who has so much to give to you the moment that you learn who he is, not simply what he is. So will you stand with me as we do our closing prayer? And this is gonna get kind of weird, <laughs> but I'm gonna ask you to hold out your hands, hold them palms open. And this is most of the time a posture of surrender. It's saying, God, I'm not gonna hold on to anything because I'm gonna trust that you're good. But I think the thing we rarely talk about with surrender is that we hold our hands open and it's also the best posture to receive. It's this posture that says that, God, you are so good and you're coming after me. And you have so many good things for me in this life and in the one to come.
So I'm gonna pray for us in this moment that we can walk away ready to receive the who that God is and live in light of all that he's gonna give us. Let's pray. Father, I wanna say thank you. And I don't know what we need to walk away in this room with. Some of us come from different stories. Some of us don't even know if we like you, love you, want anything to do with you. And I pray, Lord, no matter where we're coming from, whether we've known you for years, whether you've been a what for us for decades, whether we don't believe in you, I pray, Lord, you would help us to receive. And that every step of our life will be another marker of your goodness. And that we would never forget, Lord, that even in the hard moments, you're chasing us, you love us, and you have more to give. You're a never-ending well of generosity. And so may we live in light of that truth. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to say thanks for joining us for worship today. I want to invite you back next week as Danny's going to launch us into a new series. Uh, love you all. Uh, we'll see you next week.